what's up everybody? This is Fred Ricciani of TSC News here to review WWE Battleground 2013. At the time I am recording this, we're just a few days away from WWE Battleground 2016. So I figured since there's only three of these events in existence, why not go back in time? Take a nice bumpy trip down memory lane courtesy of the WWE Network. And holy doodle squat, do I regret taking a trip down memory lane and taking the exit to WWE Battleground 2013. October 6th, 2013. This event took place at the first Niagara Center in Buffalo, New York. Nearly 12,000 people packed the first Niagara Center to see Randy Orton versus Daniel Bryan for the second straight pay-per-view. And afterwards, it would be the third straight pay-per-view, but more on that in a little bit. Now, the background behind Battleground is that Daniel Bryan won the WWE World Championship at SummerSlam 2013, pinned John Cena clean. His elbow was like the size of a, a golf ball. It was disgusting. Or not a golf, but a tennis ball. It was gross. He went to get surgery and be on the shelf for a little while. It turns out that he was supposed to come back within four or six months. And instead, he came back in October, a little bit later on this month. So we had Daniel Bryan win the title. Randy Orton, who was that year's Raw Mr. Money in the Bank, cashed in on Daniel Bryan, won the title, thanks to a little help by a guy by the name of Triple H, who's part of the, you know, authority, which started back then. Daniel Bryan was felt like you. They, they felt like he wasn't a, a corporate champion. They felt like the guy was not the guy, which is preposterous because he got over. Now here's the flaw with Daniel Bryan. I, I go back and I think about this, and hmm, as I as I stroke my minuscule beard compared to Daniel Bryan's back then, Daniel Bryan was getting over. He was part of Team Hell No with Kane, kind of a comedy guy, mid card guy, and he really. Really got over with that world title run he had in 2012 and in late 2011. He showed he could be a great heel. He showed he could be a great tag team worker in 2012 and 2013 with Kane. And he had a ton of great matches with many teams, most notably the Shield. And Daniel Bryan stood out because he is Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson. He is one of the all-time greats. So you get to SummerSlam time, and how does Daniel Bryan finally get that one elusive WWE World Championship shot, John Cena picks him. John Cena picks him. Yeah, he picked him, like gym class. So the whole build-up to SummerSlam was John Cena picking Daniel Bryan, acting like he felt bad for him, and Stephanie McMahon and Triple H essentially saying... I don't know, Daniel. You can't be the face of the WWE. And if this sounds familiar, it's because we've been hearing the same garbage, the same crapola for three years at the time that I am recording this right now, which is July 2016. Good God Almighty. At least around this time, we have Shane McMahon. So at least we have a babyface authority figure to balance out the annoying heel authority figure. Still, I'm sick of authority figures. And they were already getting tiresome back then. So Daniel Bryan lost to Randy Orton, got his immediate rematch United Champions, won the title in relatively clean fashion, 
But the referee, Scott Armstrong, made a fast count. At least it looked like a fast count. So the next night on Raw, to make Daniel Bryan look even worse, they had Daniel Bryan give up the title. Triple H said, it will be held in abeyance. He could have said vacant, but no, they have to overthink everything and come up with another word. So they said abeyance, which meant that Randy Orton and Daniel Bryan would fight for the vacant WWE world title at Battleground. Yes, Daniel Bryan, within 24 hours, or actually within 30 days, I should say, was already a two-time WWE world champion. He lost his first title in like two minutes. And then the next one he lost in 24 hours. And you wonder why the title hasn't been really taken seriously over the years. So we get to this pay-per-view. And what happens? The Big Show. The Big Show. I repeat, The Big Show comes out. Daniel Bryan, Randy Orton going back and forth, kicking each other's asses. They're down. The Big Show comes out. You might be wondering, why would the Big Show come out during this world title match? Well, back then, they were trying to make Big Show a top babyface in 2013 when he had been there since 1999. They even tried to give Big Show the Yes Chant because they thought the Yes Chant was more over than Daniel Bryan himself. Yeah. And the storyline was that the Big Show had to comply with the authority or he would be fired. Sound familiar? Yes, because we've been through this hundreds of times with the Big Show. He's turned babyface. He's turned heel. He's turned babyface. He's turned heel. He's even turned in the same night. I think he's had like 40 turns in total in his career. It's ridiculous. And a year before that, we had him align himself with John Laurinaitis, who was the Raw GM, and he had an ironclad contract for taking out John Cena. But before that, we saw him crying and getting on his knees and begging and looking like a bitch. And my God, not only was Big Show the one guy that was prominently featured, that was looking like a just, I don't even know, man. I almost shook my camera there. My bad. I'm just heated about this because it still goes on. Big Show. He was the one that was prominently booked like as, as Jim Ross would say. I don't even know what this means, but it sounds appropriate. A scalded dog. A government mule. And the treatment of Daniel Bryan wasn't any better. The treatment of a lot of the other superstars wasn't any better. Stephanie McMahon, Triple H, just verbally burying these guys. And one would think eventually they'll get their comeuppance. And fast forward to WrestleMania 30 in 2014. They do. And then they're back on TV. Fast forward to Survivor Series 2015 when the authorities out of power thanks to Sting. And then they get back in power a month later. <sighs> this never-ending cycle of heel authority figures. So, Big Show, who was having financial issues, even though you could have Googled back then that his net worth was $20 million. Big Show, who allegedly was having financial issues, who allegedly had Triple H in storyline by his house. I have no idea if Triple H actually still owns the Big Show's house, but at the time, they just kind of casually threw it. Triple H bought his house. What? So Big Show comes out, you know, the, the guy that they want to be the top babyface in 2013. And he knocks out Daniel Bryan at the orders of the authority. 
who conveniently weren't there. They had left the pay-per-view because I guess they had better things to do than sit through this hemorrhoid of, of a show that did only 110, 114,000 pay-per-view buys worldwide. It was one of the last pay-per-views of the WWE Network era, and it was one of the worst. I think it was the, the lowest-bought pay-per-view other than ECW's December to Dismember, which is a whole nother story for a whole nother day. So Big Show knocks out Daniel Bryan. And it looks like Randy Orton's going to get the win, but Big Show knocks him out. So Big Show gets in the ring, says, You hear his theme song, Well, it's the Big Show. It's the Big Bad Show tonight. I want a refund. Oh, okay. Maybe I made that last part up. And then the show... The show just fades to black. It just fades to black. Meaning that the show ended, no pun intended, with no finish. And there were reports that fans actually called cable companies to get refunds because the show sucked and ended without a finish. Now, normally I would say this is fiction even if it wasn't fiction, if it was a fight, you really can't call for a refund. It's not like they canceled the match. It ain't false advertising. At the same time, I thought to myself, I also paid money for this. And while I'm not the type of person to call and beg for a refund if I didn't like a show, and I didn't do that, I could understand. Because this show, for 50 bucks, 54.95, whatever it was for HD, was freaking terrible. Capped off by a terrible main event. So if you're wondering what happened, well, afterwards, Big Show was fired by Stephanie McMahon, although he would constantly make appearances. They booked Orton versus Brian, Hell in a Cell. They blamed Daniel Bryan internally for the bad buy rate, not the fact that they were pushing the Big Show, not the fact that in 2013, it was very hard to care about Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. And they blamed Daniel Bryan over Randy Orton, who had been there for years in the main event spot. There's, there's a big myth. There's a big myth that WWE knew all along where they were going with Daniel Bryan. And it's unfortunate his career got cut short because they knew where they were going. No. By the time they figured out how to properly utilize him in, in, in some capacity where he belonged in the main event, he got hurt. And that's quite unfortunate. But anybody that tells you, oh, he finally arrived in 2014. No. The dude was over on the first episode of NXT in 2010. The guy was getting good reactions in 2011. He was getting great reactions in 2012. So this whole thing that, oh, it was a plan all along, and we knew what we were doing with Daniel Bryan. And look, he's had, he had a great career anyway. He really did. And it, it's unfortunate it came to a, such a sudden end, but it's such a myth when they say, oh, yeah, we knew all along what we were doing with Daniel Bryan. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. There's evidence of multiple reports from insiders. There's evidence with his book. Okay, You can just go back and watch, and you can see some of the reactions that Daniel Bryan was getting. And you can see that WWE did not utilize him properly for a majority of his career there. And on top of all that, for him to get the blame for a bad buy rate, when you train the audience, well, the casual audience anyway, or the audience that, that might not be sold on Daniel Bryan yet. You train the audience to look at him as lesser than Randy Orton and Triple H. 
You called him a guy that can't be the face of WWE. You called him goat face. You said he's ugly. You said he's not a star like Randy Orton. And on top of that, while Team Hell No was very successful, Team Hell No was largely a comedy team. They were taken seriously in the ring, but outside of the ring, they were in a lot of skits. They had anger management courses. They had an anger management graduation with a guy named Dr. Shelby. And within a month or two, you're just going to thrust Daniel Bryan into the title picture? And on top of that, you haven't beat John Cena clean only to waste it because the next night on Raw after SummerSlam 2013, you had Cena essentially say, oh, I'm happy for Daniel Bryan, but oh, I was injured and blah, blah, blah. When he really should have said, you know what? That was such a hard-fought match with Daniel Bryan that I got hurt. And I'm going to be gone for a while. And at least give him some credibility. And oh yeah, spoiler alert, Daniel Bryan lost to Randy Orton at Hell in a Cell thanks to special guest referee Shawn Michaels turning on him. And then Daniel Bryan gave the yes lock to Shawn Michaels the next night on Raw. So that was his consolation. And then he proceeded to lose to the Wyatt family in a handicap match. Proceeded to lose to Bray Wyatt at Royal Rumble. And he wasn't even in the Royal Rumble. I think Was he in the Royal No, he wasn't in the Royal Rumble in, in, in 2014. And that was a big controversy in itself. And Yes Movement came to be. And by then, they finally said, you know what? Maybe we should push this Daniel Bryan guy. So they gave him the world title, and then they proceeded to reward him with the feud with Kane. So even before he got injured, his destiny was Kane and then Suplex City with Brock Lesnar. Yeah, that didn't sound very promising. So just wanted to dispel some of those myths about Daniel Bryan. So that was the main event, the lame event. As for the rest of the show, it was not very notable outside of one match, but let's start from the beginning. What a pre-show match. Dolph Ziggler beat Damian Sandow, who a couple months before that won the Money in the Bank briefcase for SmackDown. Also, spoiler alert, he lost to John Cena. He lost out on his title opportunity. He had a great match with Cena a few weeks later, but he did lose and was never really the same after that. Although he did have a career rebirth with the Damian Mizdow gimmick as Miz's stunt double. And then afterwards, they proceeded to do nothing with him, and now he's released. Wonderful. We had the real American, Cesaro and Jack Swagger with Zeb Coulter, which is a, a weird uh, tag team, just as weird as it sounds, but they were a pretty good tag team to never win the tag titles. They beat Santino Morella and the great Kali. This sucked. We had... AJ Lee beat Brie Bella with the help of Tamina Snuka to retain the WWE Divas Championship, that ugly butterfly belt for those that remember it. AJ Lee suffered a concussion during this match, and she was taken off Raw the next night. Luckily, she got better, and she ended up having the longest Divas reign in history until Nikki Bella, and it looks like Charlotte may or may not break her record. We had... Cody Rhodes and Goldust, accompanied by Dusty Rhodes, and the last great moment Dusty Rhodes was involved in, God rest his soul, defeating The Shield in a non-title match. If The Shield won, the Rhodes family would be gone forever. If the Rhodes brothers won, they'd get all their jobs back in WWE. Now, this was the one aspect of the Authority storyline that was great. They just decided to bully a random mid-carder and it just so happened to be Cody Rhodes, the brother of Gold Dust, and the father and the son of the great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. So they put Cody Rhodes in a match with Randy Orton on Raw, and it was freaking 
excellent, maybe, just maybe the best match of Cody Rhodes' career. One of the better matches Randy Orton had that year. It was just excellent stuff. And Cody Rhodes lost. Afterwards, was interviewed backstage. This was literally two weeks before his real-life wedding to Eden Styles, a.k.a. Brandy Rhodes. And he straight up said, you know, I have a wife to provide for. WWE has always had it out for the Rhodeses, and he, he was just very passionate. Look it up on YouTube if you can. For those that say Cody Rhodes can't cut a promo when given the right material, y'all are wrong. This was a great promo. And so that led to Goldust, who had been out of the company for years, who had a ton of drug problems in real life and really had you know, weight gain issues and a cocaine issue, all kind, all kinds of stuff going on, man. He was in TNA for a while as Black Rain, which was a silver and black version of, of Gold Dust, only fat. It was a bad time to be Dustin Rhodes for a while, but he came back, looked in great shape for his age, had a phenomenal match with Randy Orton. Great match. Ended up losing. If he had won that match, he would have gotten Cody Rhodes' job back, and that eventually led to Dusty Rhodes confronting the authority cutting an awesome promo on Stephanie McMahon, putting his hand in Stephanie McMahon's face in a cool, unscripted moment, which word has it they weren't happy with. And it led to the Rhodes brothers with Dusty versus The Shield. Great match. Not worth the 50 bucks of this pay-per-view, but a great, great, great match. And it ended with Cody Rhodes, Dusty Rhodes, a bunch of dudes backstage, Gold Dust, all celebrating... They were crying. It was just... When you think about the, the the legacy of Dusty Rhodes, and you look at his WWE run, it wasn't that great. N- on camera, it wasn't great. Behind the scenes, phenomenal, given what he did in creative, and then later on in FCW and NXT, being a mentor to the stars of the present and the future. I mean, he's touched so many lives, and it was great at the time to see Dusty Rhodes, Gold Dust, Dustin Rhodes... And Cody Rhodes all just celebrate and embrace each other. That, that to me, is the best moment of Cody Rhodes' career, Dusty Rhodes' on-camera WWE career, and I'm sure Goldust's career, if you, if you ask him. I mean, it was just a beautiful moment. And, man, they ended up winning the tag titles a little bit later on, beating The Shield with the help of The Big Show. They went on a really nice run, and then they chose to make Cody Rhodes stardust and later break them up. Yeah, talk about uh, ruining a good thing. But for one night, this is pretty awesome. We had Bray Wyatt, who a couple months ago had made his debut against Kane in an Inferno match at SummerSlam. It was horrible, but the Wyatt family had a hell of a mystique back then. They took out Kofi Kingston. It was a match. And we had CM Punk beat Ryback, who had turned heel earlier in the year who was actually pretty good as a heel, had just joined Paul Heyman as a Paul Heyman guy, and he lost. Now, do you want to know how Ryback lost this match? I, I, I don't know if you guys know how he lost, for, for those that were watching at the time or, or remember. But l- let me pull up the exact match finish. Ryback took a low blow... From CM Punk to translate, to be quite frank and translate, he kicked Ryback in the balls, in the Ryballs, in the testicles. Ryback went down 
And CM Punk pinned him. That was the finish to the match. This jacked up dude with muscles on top of muscles on top of muscles lost to a skinny dude with a kick to the balls. Now, I know CM Punk is trying to fight in the UFC. And perhaps that kick was such a fierce kick that he was practicing for his future UFC debut and it ruptured Ryback's testes. I might believe that if Ryback wasn't medically cleared to fight CM Punk a couple weeks later at Hell in a Cell, which, oh, by the way, CM Punk won that match too. Again, Ryback, another... I'm not saying he should have won that feud, but Ryback should have at least won their first match with the first match of his current feud. They had feuded the year before where Ryback was undefeated going up against CM Punk, who had the, the long-reigning WWE title, win, and, title run, and... Uh, CM Punk actually beat Ryback, I think also with the low blow and a fast count. <sighs> yeah. A Ryback, another guy that could have capitalized on. and Timing's everything. They didn't make it happen with him. At least they made it happen with Daniel Bryan eventually. But this match was no good. No good at all. And, oh yeah, how could I forget? We had... Alberto Del Rio beat Rob Van Dam in a hardcore rules match. A battleground hardcore rules match. This was actually pretty good, but it was very bizarre. Because Del Rio was teamed up with Ricardo Rodriguez, his personal ring announcer. They broke up. And then Ricardo managed Rob Van Dam. Rob Van Dam? I mean, other than maybe preferences on what they like to smoke on occasion... The characters of Ricardo Rodriguez and RVD seemed like polar opposites. And here's what's bizarre. Del Rio was turned babyface at the beginning of 2013. It flopped. They, they turned him too fast. They should have let it build up. Instead, they had him just beat the big show in a random match. A random, I think it was the last man standing match. Last man standing match was our first match. He, he beat him. It was an awesome match. He won the title. And they just magically became good. He just magically became a good guy. No real turn. No real buildup. Then they try to push him at this, as this big Mexican superstar. And he, and, and he would say things like, I was born in Mexico, but my heart is in America. I'm not saying you can't be proud of being American. But if you're trying to attract Hispanic fans, Mexican fans, man, you got to big up your Mexican heritage. You're a third-generation superstar. And they scripted him badly. Then, he ended up losing to Dolph Ziggler, who was the Money in the Bank winner from the previous year. They gave up on Ziggler after a few weeks because poor Ziggler suffered a concussion and they needed an excuse to take the belt off him. And uh, that, that was That's another story for another day as well. Actually, yeah, Dolph Ziggler. Dolph Ziggler, I mentioned he fought on the pre-show, beating Damian Sandow. Earlier that year, he was the world champion. Another case of... Start and stop pushes and bad day to be creative and Vince McMahon changing his mind on things. So Del Rio was losing a bunch of non-title matches after winning the title again from Dolph Ziggler. They did a great angle where he won the world title where he gave Dolph a concussion. Referee tried to stop him from hitting Dolph in the head. AJ Lee, who was the manager for Dolph at the time, was crying her eyes out, just begging Del Rio to stop. He wouldn't. He pinned him. It was like a brilliant double turn. Because Del Rio was still b- programmed as a babyface, turned heel. Dolph Ziggler became a babyface. He's been a babyface ever since. And I can't even tell you how that feud ended. It just kind of 
went away, which was a shame. And then for a while, Del Rio was losing non-title matches left and right. He ended up beating Christian in a really good match at SummerSlam, beat RVD at Night of Champions, and he beat RVD here. But the damage, unfortunately, was already done. And as for the match quality of Brian versus Orton, it was all right. But shockingly, they actually had better TV matches than they did pay-per-view matches. Other than the WrestleMania match that also involved Batista. And oh yeah, Curtis Axel defeated R-Truth to retain the IC title. Yes, that's right. Curtis Axel, who at this moment is with the Social Outcasts, was Intercontinental Champion and a Paul Heyman guy. Nothing against his in-ring work. He clearly lacked the charisma to be a top star. But WWE booking as well did him no favors. Was put in a brief feud with Triple H, where Triple H essentially kicked his ass on Raw and then had a forfeit a match because he was shaking or had some side effects from a match with Brock Lesnar, which was a storyline that was dropped. He beat John Cena via disqualification. That did nothing for him. He lost to CM Punk a couple times, actually more than a couple times. He was CM Punk's whipping boy when he could have beaten CM Punk at least once and gotten put over. Nope. And by this point, it was very clear that even though he was a Paul Heyman guy, even though he'd be, he'd be getting something of a push, Curtis Axel was just uh, not meant to be, and eventually he lost the title to Big E, another guy who WWE screwed up with for a couple years until he finally found a stride with the New Day. <sighs> and it is going to be a new day because I, I can't believe I watched this again. Good Lord. But folks, I want to hear from you. Did you watch Battleground 2013 back in the day? Did you waste your money on one of the final WWE pay-per-views of the pay-per-view era? Ba- back then, there was Battleground, there was Hell in a Cell, there was Survivor Series, TLC, Royal Rumble, Elimination Chamber, and that was it. That was it. You know, six more pay- five, six more pay-per-views, and then it was the WWE Network era where you could get everything for $9.99 if the network's available in your respective countries. So th- this certainly didn't put a value on, on the future network proposition of, hey, you sign up, you get all these pay-per-views that are worth 50 bucks. This wasn't worth 50 bucks, but again, I want to hear from you. What do you think about Battleground 2013? Did you watch it at the time? Were you in attendance? Did you feel ripped off? Do you have some strange fetish where you want to torture yourself and go watch this on the WWE Network? Let me know. Leave a comment below. Tweet us, Facebook us. Do what you got to do. If you enjoyed this review, please like, share, take care, and don't forget to subscribe for more wrestling reviews.